What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. You cannot leave the band. You hear me? I'm sorry. It's okay. I shouldn't have left you. Oh. Sorry. That's it. No more weeks off, Josh, until we understand the full extent of your powers. Who won that Batman v Superman fight anyway? Because I've got winner. And here I was going to ask you if you had any moments like that on your trip to D.C. with the family. Michael Shannon with Jaden Lieber in that clip from Midnight Special, the long-awaited new film from Take Shelter writer-director Jeff Nichols. Our review of Midnight Special plus Ishtar, the final film in our Elaine May marathon, and the Film Spotting Madness Final Four. That and more. Back in the van, Josh. Ahead on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is supported by Squarespace, the simplest way to create a compelling website. Visit squarespace.com film to start your free trial. And by Mubi a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. And Josh, thankfully, Werner Herzog may have been eliminated from Film Spotting Madness. Tragically, he's very much alive and well over at Mubi. This is his consolation prize, I think. And this might have been programmed just for you. Did you Maybe. ask Mubi to I do this? I didn't, but when I saw it, I knew they were thinking of me. Herzog Ecstatic Truths. It's their Werner Herzog documentary retrospective that's beginning with his bittersweet portrait of his notorious and possibly mad leading man, Klaus Kinski. That's my best fiend. Possibly? The complete lineup, along with an introduction to the series, can be found at com slash Herzog. And I did eagerly click that link and go check out what they are offering among the six films coming up during this series, Lessons of Darkness, which is a must-see for sure, and Little Dieter Needs to Fly, which was the film that was the basis for the fictional version, or I should say the narrative version of that story that we all saw with Christian Bale and Rescue Don. I love Little Dieter. Both movies were part of my Cinema Verite class a few years ago, so lots of good stuff to see over at Mubi now. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there are always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, and all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile app, you can download films to watch offline. Film spotting listeners can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash film spotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash film spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. This week, the NCAA may have crowned its champion. Congratulations, Villanova, on that insane buzzer beater. Josh, I know you're a basketball fan. And congratulations to me for not winning a dime in my NCAA tournament pool, but being one of those people among the 2.6% of people on ESPN who correctly picked Villanova to win it all. And I did do that. You don't get anything for no, that, huh? I finished fifth. The rest of my picks were that terrible. <laughs> Here on Film Spotting, the madness continues. Tarantino, Scorsese, Fincher, Nolan, Soderbergh, the Cone Boys, a couple of Andersons, half of them will fall as we get down to our final four directors later in the show. Plus, the redemption of Ishtar, the infamous box office bomb starring Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty has its critical champions, but will Josh and I count ourselves among them? The final film in our Elaine May marathon is later in the show. But first, Midnight Special, one of our most anticipated films of the year for a few years running now, finally gets its film spotting review. 
Police issued an Amber Alert for an eight-year-old boy. He was abducted from his home near El Dorado, Texas. It's time. You ready? Yeah. Okay. What do you know about Alton Meyer? I wouldn't know where to start. He would have fits. Things would break. It was like a feeling. Kind of feeling. We need to know where he is. You all have no clue what you're dealing with, do you? All during our long wait for Midnight Special, the latest film from writer-director Jeff Nichols, a film spotting favorite for Shotgun Stories, Take Shelter, and Mud, I've been able to avoid too many details. I knew it was about a young boy with special powers, played by Jaden Lieberer, who's on the run with his father, played by Nichols' regular Michael Shannon. And that was enough for me. Now, having finally seen it, I can fill in some more non-spoilery details. The boy named Alton has fled a doomsday cult that's led by Sam Shepard. Joel Edgerton plays a friend of the father character who helps them reunite with the boy's mother, played by Kirsten Dunst. Meanwhile, Adam Driver, sans lightsaber, plays an NSA agent trying to investigate the nature of Alton's powers. So you can sense the genres at play here, Adam. And Nichols proved to be a master of genre mixing with the psychological apocalyptic family drama Take Shelter. Midnight Special is something of a family drama as well, but it also has significant sci-fi shades along the lines of close encounters of the third kind, as well as some of the characteristics of a superhero origin story. Now, if you accept that construct, Adam, would you say Midnight Special registers more strongly as one of these types of films over the others, or did Nichols manage the difficult feat of merging them all seamlessly? That is a major question. And you just came from the movie. I saw it about 24 hours ago. I wish I had a really good answer for you. I think overall, yes, he does pull it off because I am a fan of this film. And it's actually a movie that has grown in my estimation since I saw it and since I've thought about it more. That doesn't mean it's without its frustrations, though. And I think some of them are tied to just how many different narrative threads are going on here. I actually think Nichols sets us up so well that then when things fizzle out a little bit, we hold it against him because there is so much promise to what we get early on in the film. And I can't remember even all the movies it reminded me of getting to your point about how many different genres it mixes. Certainly the Stephen King adaptation Firestarter was in mind, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. There's a lot of Starman, the John Carpenter film here. There's even some E.T. And again, I think there's a few others that occurred to me throughout the film. But I think even as I have been dwelling on some of the things that didn't quite work for me with this film that I'm sure we'll talk about, it does contain two of my favorite acting moments of the year so far. And they are two of the most emotional moments of the year so far that I've seen in movies. And they're both close-ups. One Michael Shannon and one Kirsten Dunst reacting to Alton, their son. I'll say that. Unfortunately, I can't say a whole lot more because they both come near the end of the movie. Shannon's moment underlines one of the key themes of the movie, and Dunst's moment is just great acting. It's a moment where she's reacting with sadness, looking at surely nothing, actually there off in the distance, and she has to do it in a way that doesn't feel at all treacly or hysterical or false. And 
it doesn't. It's a tremendous load, and that moment carries a lot of weight. And I think throughout, Nichols might actually rely a little bit too much on Shannon and Dunst and their faces to communicate emotion and mystery when there probably simply needed to be a little more clarity in the first place. But there are so many moments that are just right. And I think for the most part, Nichols is mysterious in the right ways. I think that's what ultimately really won me over with this movie, Josh. It's not a case where you feel like a director is trying to trick you or play games with you. He's not being overly cryptic. He just wants you to be human, to be an observer, to ascribe meaning to what you see and what you hear, but recognize that it's only part of the story, that there are layers that have to be pierced through and pieced together. So it's not maddening that we don't get a bunch of exposition, for example, really at the beginning of the film or throughout the film. Instead, it's intriguing. I was really drawn into it. What about you? I would say that maybe it's too upfront, in fact, in that we get a fairly complete explanation about three quarters of the way through. Sure. And there isn't so much mystery after that point. But so it almost scene, works on the other. It's it's doled out to us. Yeah. And, and certainly there is plenty of mystery right at the beginning all the way through that point, which is not exactly a reveal as more of a character explanation, I guess well, we could say. I, it. We should probably leave that to the side for those who haven't But to be clear, it. what you're getting at is the mystery of whether or not there's really something magical, spiritual, mystical about the Alton character. Yeah, the mystery about what is behind the boy's powers. Okay. Um, so I'm a fan of this film, too. And I guess I would say I'm mostly a fan of the superhero origin story that this film is. That was the vein that I felt rang true the most and the scenes that played with those genre elements seem to be doing something really exciting. Maybe it's because we are both still recovering from the bruises of Batman v Superman and this is just taking that whole idea of someone with otherworldly powers and looking at it it's like it's like flipping the telescope around mm-hmm. like instead of giving us this worldwide universal wide picture of what it would be like for a man to have these extraordinary powers we're zooming in on one family And like, what if this was in one family? What if this was in a kid and they didn't really understand it? And the fate of the world, the fate of Metropolis wasn't really at stake here. Instead, what was at stake is, can this family stay together? Can they reunite? How are they going to deal with what at some scenes here feel like extreme health problems? You know, as a parent, they're dealing Mm -hmm. with this on the level of our kid is unhealthy. What's wrong with our kid? How can we help yes. him? And that really registers mm-hmm. in this film. And I think that points to what's been strong about all of Nichols' films, actually, is the emphasis on family specifically or even more broadly, just interaction between two people. You're absolutely right about the actors being cued into what's going on here. I mean, they sell this for all the weird places this movie goes. Mm-hmm. And it goes a lot of weird places. Most of them I enjoyed. Yeah. The actors are on board. They are. And so they give good performances. There are a lot of close-ups in here. Mm-hmm. And, and perhaps it's because Nichols saw that and he saw how on board they were. And, he, and he's like, I'm going to ride this as long as I can. They believe. They do believe. Absolutely. And that that does go a long way. I think what I like along these lines the most in Shannon's performance is that he's always this dad first. So yeah. no matter how crazy things get, his main concern is protecting this child, the immediate needs of this child, and that really registered to me. And so you add that layer on it again, like I said, of of this possibly being a superhero story. I love the early touch of the kid reading Superman comics, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's just, uh, you know, 
M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable did this a little bit, where it showed us a superhero story mm-hmm. from a completely different vantage point. And I really liked Midnight Special as that sort of film. Yeah, I didn't really see it that way at all. I really like that reading. I don't think that by the end of the film, that is really borne out. It goes a different direction. It goes in a different end. direction. Yeah, definitely. And so it makes me question, I guess, whether or not Nichols was really trying to get at that at all. I still really like that reading. And I especially like it because thinking about Superman, having just watched Batman v Superman and also recently watched Man of Steel for the first time, it is sort of like what would happen with that Superman character. What we see in Man of Steel, where he has this childhood really scenes, kind of yeah. troubled, horrible childhood, yeah. but all the things Jonathan Kent, the Kevin Costner character, keeps telling him will go horribly wrong if the world knows about your power, but they're a little bit more abstract because they're really just stuck in this little Kansas town. Here in Midnight Special, we really get a sense That's that what they're dealing the with. whole world could end, right? right. <laughs> you know, depending on how this shakes out with this character. Dad? Yeah? Are you scared? Yes. You don't have to worry about me. I like worrying about you. You don't have to anymore. I'll always worry about you, um... That's the deal. In terms of the way Nichols weaves this large narrative, there are a lot of characters here, but it's really streamlined in the way everything does revolve around Alton. And I think Nichols really nicely shows us the investment, the personal investment every character, every major character anyway, has in him. So the government and their agenda, well, they've got legitimate political and national security concerns. And the church headed up by Sam Shepard, we meet him earlier in the film, they have their own religious and spiritual concerns that are justified. Paul, who is a representative of the government, that's the character played by Adam Driver, he's got his own scientific interests, but also just natural curiosity, I think, draws him into Alton. And then, as you touched on, Roy and Sarah... Dunst and Shannon, they are a mother and father, first and foremost, who just want their son with them. And they want him to be safe and they want him to be happy. And that means whatever form happiness might take. And then the Edgerton character, his name is Lucas. He's a caretaker. He's a protector. And he recognizes a calling in protecting him. So that's all very clear. And that's what I was getting at when I said everything is set up so nicely that then what ultimately does hurt the movie, I think, is that after Nichols concentrates the narrative the way he does, we then want all of these players to get their due. And I can't help but think that there is probably a three-hour cut of this movie out there Hmm. that would be very powerful. And in fact, a much better film. Sam Shepard, who I touched on as this leader, I guess you can call him a cult leader, that's kind of alluded to, instead of him disappearing from the entire film, sure, we see some of the people who are working for him, but he just completely disappears. And I think it would have been more interesting to see his through line a little bit, especially Adam Driver as Paul. He's mostly an observer here. He does affect the plot in some major ways. He does act a little bit more. I mentioned Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Starman. He is a little bit like the Roy character in terms of of being a believer. But I really thought of Charles Martin Smith in Starman. He's a government agent who is the only one who believes and thinks that there could be something otherworldly going on and is on the path of trying to find this guy. Nichols is so sensitive with these people, never reducing them to caricatures And that made me want them even more involved. I think the cuts are noticeable here in the way that these characters, like I said, either disappear or just aren't fully 
explored as much as they could have been. Yeah, there, you can sense that uh, this was probably tinkered with in the long wait that we've had for it. And that is interesting. You say there could be a three-hour cut. I hadn't thought of that. But I did get the feel that we were going for this Close Encounters Convergence finale. Mm-hmm. And we sort of get half of that, Yeah, I would say. There's, there's Speaking of Driver, there's the point where he asks if he can join another group of characters. <laughs> right. like, no. Can I come with you? And they're like, no. And I was like, oh, come on, let him. Yeah. Because he was he's so good in this. Yeah. I love the scene between him and Alton where he's interviewing him in yeah. the government facility. Oh, yeah. It's a that, good one. That interview room has a great THX white glare yeah, to totally it. antiseptic yeah, yeah. and um, and there's a nice plane overall with uh, darkness and light because Alton can't be a in lot the of sun. darkness and light that's one of the restrictions he has because it will affect him negatively and so the whole first maybe 30 minutes of the film they're traveling at night um, and they're hiding out they're blocking the sun out of rooms and then when that changes all of a sudden the movie opens up to the daytime and mm-hmm. you really feel that it's it's like the the windows you in the really theater have been opened up totally so I, I like how the movie blossoms in that way and going back to the climax a bit I for me I think the reason I feel like it loses something by losing some of the mystery. So we get Alton explained. We understand um, what his powers are and, more importantly, what's behind them. Mm -hmm. Is one of the things I was really liking is this setup that the film was doing between the possibility that this cult has, that there's some sort of religious, spiritual significance to his powers and that they really believe in that, right? And then you have the government representing the scientific approach. They've detected what this kid is able to do Mm -hmm. and they want to get to the bottom of it scientifically and to, to understand, you know, how it could be used for a weapon or intelligence or something like that. And you have these two through lines that seem to me to be heading for some sort of collision. And I felt as if a climax would... Maybe the climax that I think would have been rewarding is the climax of mystery where we are taken somewhere, but we're not given that answer. And and this it's movie— It's still mysterious, though. I mean, it's weird. Well, it's—oh, it's bizarre. Yeah. It's, and we shouldn't—at some point, we should do a spoiler, talk about it, because I have some questions, and that's part of the problem, too, is it's, it's bizarre in a good way and then a bizarre in a sort of a, hmm, wait yeah. a minute now way. Yeah. And, and so— that's not the sort of mystery that I would have liked, you know, where, where I have specific questions about things. Mm-hmm. I would have liked a mystery where I was like, I don't know if this kid has just, you know, some weird biological abilities or if he has some spiritual potential. And what we get seems to be a third avenue um, that just disrupts that dichotomy that the movie was playing with a little bit. Yeah, you're right. We really can't get into it because we're not going to get into spoiler territory here. But I did notice in looking at just some of the quick responses to the movie on like Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic that people really do seem to be bothered by the ending, even though overall it's getting pretty favorable reviews. And I'm still wrestling with it myself, but I can't help but wonder whether it's just sort of a natural reaction to something so Fantastic. I mean, Nichols has painted himself into a corner throughout the entire movie with its basic premise and where we see it go that he can't completely get out of by the end unless he just fully commits to it. And so the thing I'm curious about, which I know you probably can't fully answer here, is would any visual representation of what happens at the end of this film suffice? Would there be an ending to this film? You suggested there would be in terms of its ambiguity. I mean, specifically, can you pinpoint something a choice Nichols could have made to fix this ending? Not in the construct of the explanation for the boy. 
Um, I, I think that he he's really painted himself in a corner is a good way to describe it, made that a difficult thing mm-hmm. to envision. Uh, and let me offer as a positive way a movie can embrace that sort of mystery, not close encounters. I, maybe that's not quite as mysterious. We do get a sense of where Roy Neary is going. But what about Take Shelter? I mean, that movie, the ending is its brilliance for both of us. And in a way that it left us and many audience members wondering what the heck happened there. But in a way that was intriguing, enticing, still left room for a lot of interpretation either way, yeah. a third way. And and maybe that's more what I was kind of hoping for at the end of Midnight Special. Yeah, though that's interesting because we've touched on this a little bit over the years of getting ready for this movie, Midnight Special, to come out. I don't see the ending of Take Shelter at all as being science fiction. I think there's a pretty clear reading of the film, despite all its ambiguity. And so I don't think of it in those terms, whereas this is decidedly science fiction. There is decidedly something fantastic about this that I think just as a viewer, you're constantly stuck in that realm between reality, and this film was very much grounded in reality, Mm -hmm. and then just how fantastic it gets. And I just really wonder if any ending could have sufficed. And there's a part of me that actually appreciates that he goes as far as he does. I do think there's a good way to phrase what we're talking about a little bit. I read David Edelstein's review in, I think, Vulture, and he had a line, Josh, that I'll never be able to shake now when I think about Jeff Nichols' work because it's just such an eloquent way to put it. And there are shades of all of this in his individual films. But I do think as well, you could look at it as a trajectory. This statement kind of sums up all of his films. If you start with something like Shotgun Stories, which is so quotidian, it's so about the everyday, there's nothing fantastic or spiritual about that film. And then we go to take shelter and we get the ending you're talking about and we get to even some of the mystery of a movie like mud there's something fantastic about that well, it's, kind a of a, it's a fairy tale it's a fairy tale exactly and then we get to this movie which takes everything even a step further and edelstein's line is the opening is small scale which is nickel's secret to move step by step from the tightly focused to in this case the cosmic That's really it. That's what Nichols does in all of his films. He infuses that bit of the everyday with the cosmic. And this film just takes the cosmic to its its (laughs) ultimate extreme. And as I said, there's something about that I actually kind of appreciate. But going back to the way this narrative is constructed, I think what separates Nichols from some other directors who would take this kind of material, a thriller, a crime movie on some level, you're right, all these different genres that are in the mix, science fiction— Look at the character in the scene we get with Bill Camp. He's an actor I had to look up because he's one of those that guys who we've been seeing a ton lately. He's the right-hand man. He's kind of the heavy to Sam Shepard. He's in 12 Years a Slave, Birdman, Love and Mercy, Aloha, Black Mass. He's going to be in the next Jeff Nichols movie. I was going to so, say, was he in any previous Nichols movies? I don't I, think so. He does have one of those faces. Yes. And I thought he, hey, he must have been from Shotgun Stories or something because he has that just lived in every day, yes. but yet expressive in an actorly way face. Totally. And I really thought I was going to look up his IMDb credits and see that one movie and go, oh, yeah, that's what I was thinking of him from. It turns out I've been thinking of him from all of these mm-hmm. roles. But there is a scene with him where he's about to do something that is unethical, certainly, and probably against his moral code. And Nichols takes the time to have him sit in the vehicle with another man who's been assigned this task, who we can say, it's not spoiling anything, the Sam Shepard character says, you have to go find the boy and bring him back to our ranch. Simple as that. You've got four days to do it. And just looking at him 
and his manner and, again, knowing what his assignment is and assuming there's something nefarious about it. We want the boy to get away from this cult. You immediately think he must be a bad person who has no problem doing bad things. And instead, we get that nice exchange with that other guy where he says, the Lord basically is asking me to do something I'm not really equipped to do, and yet I must do it. And so that larger question of faith, too, we see that play out with the Michael Shannon character. As the father, there's a key scene, and there are others later, too, but one early in the film where he has to make the call whether to do something against his own moral code but would it sacrifice a greater good as he sees it? And Nichols really plays with those kind of moral quandaries a lot in this movie. Yeah, the father believes in Alton, in the boy, but not in the cult's use of him yes. or, or what what they want him for. So there's an important distinction there. And in that scene with Bill Camp, I love how it starts. The first thing he says, I believe, is I'm a certified electrician in two states. Exactly. You know? and, and you're like, well, where is this going? Mm-hmm. And as far as we know, this guy's like a hired gun. Yeah. And now he's saying that. But I think that points to what Nichols does in all of his films is populate them with real people, no matter how, yes, they may be spiraling up into these more fantastic scenarios, Mm -hmm. but they're always rooted in people who look familiar, who you can identify with, who you you could know in your real life, even down to a minor supporting character like that. Absolutely. I went back and looked at my notes from our review of the movie Mud here on the show, and it's funny because I said that Nichols is continuing to explore themes he dove into in his previous film, Shotgun Stories and Take Shelter. I said all three movies are about a lot of things with different heroes and plots, but they're all about family and marriage and communication and honesty and intimacy. And, of course, that's what this film is about, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to put Nichols in sort of an tourist mold, you certainly could because – As I just said, he's making very different movies that are fundamentally about all of the same issues. And one line I had was that the emotional payoff of Mud is people simply saying, I love you in a way that isn't unsentimental and is truthful. And I gave Nichols credit for pulling that off in this movie, Midnight Special. I think the movie really ends in a very similar fashion, only instead of people saying I love you to each other, what we get is characters, and this ties in with some of the larger potential Christian themes of this movie, if you want to see it that way, is it's really about people doing, right? It's about acts of love mm-hmm. throughout the entire film. They may not say it, though they often do say it, but it's about how they act. It's in the sacrifices they make for each other that ultimately shows their true feelings, how deep their feelings run. And in terms of it working as a family drama or a portrait of a family, that's almost the sole purpose of the Joel Edgerton character, this friend who comes along. Because frequently we will see the parents with Alton from his perspective. And Nichols very carefully frames. Yes, there are a couple of scenes where he very carefully frames them in a domestic portrait almost. And we're seeing it from the Joel Edgerton character's perspective. perspective. That it's important to him. And so that tells us everything we need to know about him. We don't need any of his backstory. We simply know what he is longing for, what he's trying to connect with in those POV shots. And what he's striving for for this particular family. That's right. And we talked a lot about Michael Shannon and how good the performances are. I did not bring up all of his credits. I've loved Michael Shannon in a lot of movies, especially every Jeff Nichols film. Up to this point, he is in all of them. But this right now might be my favorite Michael Shannon performance. I Hmm. think it's the best overall use of his natural, just inherent torment and anguish that he seems imbued with. But this movie suggests that it comes from this deep well of empathy. So there's nothing kind of creepy about it, which 
he can come off in various movies here. It's as if he's almost too sensitive for this world. Yeah, he it's... loves too much. And there are all these layers to him. And it's a demanding role, too, because it does. You touched on this. It asks him to do things that I think are seemingly counter to how a father how many of us might think a father should treat his son? We might behave differently and make different choices as a dad. And yet, even in those moments, we never stop empathizing with him. That's the trick that Shannon pulls off. I think it's probably one of his warmest performances in that way. I yeah. mean, Take Shelter has this, I think, this level to it. But there's still that sense of Michael Shannon menace to it because he's a guy who for much of the film, the film in its entirety, really, we wonder if he's mentally stable. Yeah. So there's that element, too. But yeah, here um, he's giving a much warmer performance. And I think. As much as we're talking about narrative and acting and the characters, I love what you said about the lightness and dark. That was something I noted as well, because there is a visceral component to this movie in terms of just the storytelling visually, whether it's debris falling from the sky, whether it's the sunrise, whether it's the ground just kind of shaking. Right. There, there is something that makes you feel like you're immersed in this world, and it's very sensory, which just proves that Nichols isn't just a very capable writer, but is a very capable director as well. Midnight Special is out now in limited release. It is rolling out to more theaters this weekend. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. So I was keeping my eye on Film Spotting Madness during my week off, Adam, and the race between David Fincher and Wes Anderson was a little too close for my comfort. I don't want to talk about it. Am I breathing easier now? We'll have results and the final four matchups, too, when we come back. Stay with us. Hey, folks, just a quick reminder that Film Spotting is supported by Squarespace, the simplest way to create a compelling website. From the strange to the downright bizarre, great stories define us. You should tell yours with simple tools and templates. Squarespace helps you capture your story with a captivating website. Start your free trial today. Visit squarespace.com film. And Josh, this is always the part of the show where we feature a testimonial from a listener, give a little plug to a listener's website, and we could use a few more. We'd be happy to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net if you have a website that is powered by Squarespace. But we also heard from Jake Paul this week. He's in Austin, Texas. Hi, Adam and Josh. Big fan of the show. I started a film blog earlier this year, and even though I have a technical background and could have done something much more complicated, I decided to use Squarespace. Long story short, Squarespace gives me extremely nerdy control over almost all the details worth controlling and takes care of everything not worth worrying about. I don't want to lose my internet dork membership card, 
so I'm not allowed to say it's perfect, but it's as good as it gets. Though I haven't seen that Jack Nicholson movie, so maybe I shouldn't say that. Thoughts? I think you should stay away from that Jack Nicholson movie. That's my thought. <laughs> anyway, my blog is called Play Slash Pause and features daily links to excellent writing about film with a dash of color commentary. I'd love for film spotting listeners to check it out at playpause.net or at heyplaypause on Twitter. Thanks for doing what you do. Well, if you want extremely nerdy control over almost all the details worth controlling on your website, visit squarespace.com slash film. Squarespace, you should. For the 80 you living in this house, there's going to be some guidelines for living here. Number one. No alcohol in these houses, okay? It's against school policy, need I say more? Number two, and it's a biggie, gentlemen, no girls upstairs in those bedrooms. Welcome back to Film Spotting. So, from what I can tell, the only returning character in Richard Linklater's so-called spiritual sequel to Dazed and Confused is the coach's list of fascist rules. <laughs> Just keep living, man, Josh. It's like I always say, L-I-V-I-N. <laughs> There's a clip there from Linklater's Everybody Wants Some, which is currently out in limited release and is the movie we do plan to review next week on the show, along with a top five that, I don't know if it's really TBD, Josh, I think we're pretty set on trying to consider the entire body of work that is Richard Linklater's. I don't know that I will be prepared for that top five, but it's I a good place feel to like start. That would be easy. I mean, not because there's so few choices, but no, there's too many. Well, there there are, but they're also very personal. You know, the, yeah. the sort of scenes that resonate with you from his film. So, yeah, I would love to do that. So this is the first time I'm hearing of it. So. I've got my plan. I thought you were on board with this. I thought you were I part not, of the conversation. I've not been consulted on this. OK, well, I, I was gone. Who knows what's happening? Exactly. Well, you can raise way. your objections in. No, I'm in. I a like subsequent it. meeting. But I do, as you say it, Josh, have an idea. I'm just going to keep my top five limited to the before films. You should. I could do that. I think you should. I could do that. That would be a lot less stressful on me, or in fact, maybe more stressful. A couple of programming and promotional notes here. Wanted to mention, if you weren't already aware of it, because it didn't play on the radio version of the show, Josh, but it did appear in our podcast feed. If you subscribe to the show via iTunes or you just listen via filmspotting.net, I had a chance to talk with Tom Hiddleston last week about the movie I Saw the Light, where he plays Hank Williams, and also the writer-director of that film, Mark Abraham. And they were both just great guys to talk with, and I think they both had some interesting things to say about that movie. I haven't listened to it yet, but I've heard that you only asked him Loki questions. Yeah, and somehow he, he stayed in his seat and didn't throw the mug of water at me. It's crazy. He's just too sweet of a guy. I think what did it, Josh, I think I won Hiddleston over about three-quarters of the way through the interview when I drew a connection between his Adam character in Only Lovers Left Alive and Hank Williams. Aha. Uh-huh. I think I think you that's, were in from that yeah, point. Yeah, I on. mean he knew, you know, I was a serious film guy then when I of brought course. Jarmish. So again, that interview available now at filmspotting.net or via iTunes. We have some movie passes to give away to our local Chicago listeners. The new film from writer director John Carney who made just a wonderful movie many years ago called Once and then more recently Begin Again, I think was the name of the film with Ruffalo and Kira Knightley, which somehow I never did catch up with. His new movie is Sing Street and there's going to be an advanced screening of that film Monday, April 19th at the Landmark here in Chicago. If you want to enter to win passes to that advanced screening, you can do that at filmspotting.net. There is also where you will find 
The way to enter to get passes to The Man Who Knew Infinity. This is a true story of a friendship that changed mathematics forever. Josh, right up your alley. Friday, May 6th is when it opens, and there's going to be an advanced screening on Wednesday, April 27th. Dev Patel and Jeremy Iron star in that movie. All I want to know if is that movie will help me with fourth grade math, because we're really struggling with that at home right now. I don't know. This sounds like the old math, maybe not the new math. So That's the problem. You might be in trouble. Links to enter for passes to both of those screenings at filmspotting.net. And I wanted to mention briefly here, or I'll try to be brief, Josh, the movie Remember. This is a movie that's been pushed back a little bit. It's the latest Adam Agoyan film. It played at the Chicago International Film Festival this past October. It's out now on about 40 screens, opens in Chicago just this weekend. And it's not a movie I can urge people to run out to see. Definitely mixed on it for a variety of reasons, but A very compelling premise. Christopher Plummer plays a 90-year-old man who has just lost his wife. They are in a retirement home, and he basically gets a mission, and that is to go seek out one of the guards, the lead guard at Auschwitz, who really ruined his life as he sees it and killed so many people who were close to him. So there's a little bit of memento to this movie, Josh, because he's on this mission of revenge and he also is suffering from Alzheimer's. Hmm. So he is constantly having to read letters or read certain notes to remind him of exactly what the hell he's doing. So very intriguing premise with some twists and turns along the way. Again, can't overly recommend it, but there is a scene in this movie that I think is amazing. By the time you get to the end of the film and you go back and replay some things in your mind, and I had to really think through this movie because I did a Q&A with Lagoyan right. at the film festival, there is a scene that is pretty mind-blowing in what it ultimately means, what the ramifications of it are. And poor Dave Broad, who's a film spotting listener, who is a guy I also know from my Grinnell College days, he came to our last rap party and somehow this movie came up and I couldn't stop myself. I wanted to tell him about this scene. So I was like, you're never going to see this movie. I'll just spoil the whole thing for you. (laughs) But it's that interesting and I won't do that now on air. But if anybody has seen Remember or you see it and you're curious about it, you actually want to know what the hell I'm talking about with that scene, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. I'll be happy to share it. And you'll probably think, really, Adam, that's it. That's what was so amazing about that scene. So I've overhyped it. But I am more intrigued now. Yeah, wanted to throw out a little bit about that film. Remember, opening this weekend in Chicago. Let's get to film spotting madness, Josh. That NCAA championship game, that was pretty amazing. I didn't see any of it, but I caught the ending, and the ending was spectacular. North Carolina and Villanova, it set a pretty high bar for exciting conclusions. We'll see what kind of excitement we can work up over the next couple of weeks as we wrap up our Madness, Film Spotting Madness, the director's edition. Again, Let me uh, pull out my yeah, brackets pull it out, here. See if it's been busted. We started with 32 currently active Film Spotting favorite directors. Only one will live to direct another day. We're going to get to the final four by the end of this segment. And as we've noted many times, while a director's previous work is crucial towards making your decision, your vote is really about your interest in their future work. And if you're listening right now and have the ability to play along and have a visual guide, the bracket for our voting is available at challenge.com slash fsmadness2016. That's challenge with an O. Challenge. Challenge. I'm just pronouncing it that way in regular life now. Yeah. Because it's in my head. <laughs> slash fsmadness2016. Again, just the bracket, not the voting. You actually vote in the poll questions via our website. 
The third round here, many people thought Josh was actually maybe the easiest round so far. I wouldn't necessarily disagree. And there was one minor upset that did wreak havoc with some of our brackets because we did lay out these brackets ahead of time, a little bit of a challenge between me, you, Sam, and the father, the founding father of Film Spotting Madness, Mike Merrigan. Actually, conveniently, Josh, Mike left us a voicemail to help set up the Elite Eight results. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson against Christopher Nolan, for me, is an easy one. Uh, Nolan's an interesting guy, but everything PTA touches seems to be magical, and I don't want to suffer the possibility of not having another inherent vice. Quentin Tarantino and Marty Scorsese, uh, that one is, is evil, to use the word that comes up time and again in this tournament. Uh, these two guys are sort of the gatekeepers of cinema history and both doing interesting things. Uh, to Adam's point, Marty still has his fastball, and I always want to see Tarantino play around in his nasty little sandbox. Uh, Wes Anderson against David Fincher. Film Spotting Nation, please. It is time to put an end to Josh Larson's tyranny and end this Wes Anderson madness. I voted against Anderson, against Charlie Kaufman, against Guillermo del Toro, and I will do it again with Fincher. I know Film Spotting Nation can help me on this. And finally, Steven Soderbergh, although he has put on an excellent dark horse run here, I think finally comes up against the buzzsaw in the Coen Brothers. Uh, Good luck to everybody. Thanks for making those votes. And uh, I think it's time we put a little bit of money on this contest, guys. What do you say? Dirty politics. The tyranny of Josh Larson. Dirty, dirty. I thought I I only used that phrase with my wife after we taped the shows. To actively campaign against someone in the tournament. All right. It's on now. I mean, if we're going to be doing that. Mike and I are simpatico, though. I voted for Wes Anderson over... Guillermo del, del Toro. Toro. I did That's not as far vote as for you him would take it. ahead of Fincher or ahead of Charlie Coffin, but we'll get to Mr. Anderson and Mr. Fincher. Let's start with matchup number one, Paul Thomas Anderson v. Christopher Nolan. Last week's forecast, I thought it would end a little closer to 60-40. Sam Van Hallgren, don't mess with Sam. He did think it would go about 70-30. Paul Thomas Anderson. He later actually did revise it to 80-20. I love that Sam has revisions to oh, his yeah, predictions. There you go. For the tournament. Tim B. wrote in, I debated several factors. Age isn't a decider. They're within a month of each other in age. They both have multiple masterpieces, though PTA has a better masterpiece batting average. Here we go. Here we go with the new math, Josh. I have PTA at 5 for 8 or a 625 MBA, oh my which goodness. is unheard of. I have Nolan at 4 of 9 or 444 MBA, which is very respectable. I give the slight edge to Nolan for consistency and output basically every two years since 1998. PTA's output makes me a bit nervous. What if he takes five years in between movies again, like he did between Punch Drunk Love and There Will Be Blood, and again between that and The Master? Ultimately, my decision came to the theater test, and when Interstellar came out, I took off work and went to a Thursday midnight screening at my nearest 70mm IMAX screen, wow. and I'll probably do the same when Dunkirk comes out in 2017. Yeah, that makes it an easy choice then. All right, Kate Foyo wrote in to say, imagine losing not just Nolan, but what Nolan represents. A billion-dollar blockbuster written like a $20 million house flick. Whether or not you liked Interstellar, it's unique and nobody else could have made it. Nobody else would have built practical sets for the most distinct looking spaceship we've seen since the Star Wars days and then scored the whole thing to discordant church organs with a cast full of Oscar nominees with no source material, no promise of a sequel and no franchise building Easter eggs. 
hate or adore the result, it's a blockbuster seen by millions that means something more than a tick off of Marvel or DC's checklist. Those films have their place, and heck, I even love some of them. But large-scale filmmaking deserves more than that. I go to the movies to see the big, impossible things theater and literature can't visualize. It's been part of cinema's appeal since the medium began. I don't want to live in a world where I have to choose spectacle or substance. And in my mind, Nolan is the only modern filmmaker capable of giving us both. Wow. Man, as an interstellar skeptic, that convinces me. I I regret my vote now. (laughs) I'm not buying that, Josh. But Kate is very wise. We've gotten a lot of feedback from her recently. We're going to hear more from her in a moment. And I just really appreciate having seen Interstellar, as you know, recently in 70 millimeter at the music box with my kids. Look, I don't subscribe to the notion that we give a movie extra points or we should grade it on a curve because of its ambition. But I'll tell you that I watched Interstellar for the second time going, really? All of this, all of this on the screen, all those things Kate just touched on, and there was too much talking. That's what we're going with. That's what really bummed people out about this film. Give me a break. He didn't need the talking, Adam. If only there wasn't the talking. Apparently, apparently. Isaac Kester wrote in from Olathe, Kansas. So I'm standing outside the theater trying to decide on these two. Do I choose PTA, who will undoubtedly make me feel frustrated and weak-minded until I rewatch his film for the second or third time and realize it's a masterpiece? Or do I go with Nolan, who will make me feel less stupid and more intrigued? But over time, the film's logical holes begin to nod at me. Ultimately, I'll sit down in Anderson's theater, laughing and puzzling at what I'm seeing. But during the movie... I'll hear the dull roar of a Hans Zimmer score or the yelling of Tom Hardy from the auditorium (laughs) and wonder if I really made the right decision. Very nice. I love it. The results then, Josh, Paul Thomas Anderson, 69% to 31%. So wait a minute. Let me go back to Sam. Sam initially uh, had it right at 70-30. Oh, Sam, come on. Initially had it right. Go with your gut. 69-31 PTA advances. Our next matchup, Martin Scorsese versus Quentin Tarantino. It's not my intention to do this in front of you. For that, I'm sorry. But you can take my word for it. Your mother had it coming. So I guess the relevant question here, Josh, is who's the bride in this scenario and who's the mama who had it coming? Martin Scorsese was in this tournament our number five seed just slightly behind Quentin Tarantino, who was our number four seed. In other words, me, you, Sam, all thought that he would get to the final four. And we suggested last week with Michael Phillips that this one just could be a tie, that this was going to be some kind of bloodbath because both directors not only, of course, deal with violence a little bit in their work, but because they're so revered by so many cinephiles that it was really a hard one to project. Danny says, brutal, just brutal. Okay. I'm standing at the theater. There they both are. It took me far longer to make this decision than I ever anticipated, but I chose Scorsese. Tarantino started this whole obsession with filmmaking that's followed me throughout my life, and following his breadcrumbs led me to Scorsese, which blew the hinges off of cinema for me. That is certainly true of me as well. Tarantino was the way in, but Marty for me became the way. I feel like Quentin is in my bones, and I know what to expect rhythmically, technically, and thematically from him. Hateful Eight played like a great cover album sung by the original singer. 
Marty has remained true to himself, but switched it up throughout his career enough for me to remain fascinated by a story just by virtue of him being the teller. I'm all in for both of them, for however many films they have left in them, but Quentin has announced his exit strategy. I don't think Marty's done by a long shot, and I'm always thrilled at the prospect of a new Scorsese picture. I'm with you, Danny. Zach said, I take umbrage with Tarantino's plan to retire after 10 films. It reeks of self-importance. He claims he doesn't want to leave a blemish on his filmography, yet this requires us to collectively ignore Death Proof. And also because I've heard him suggest filmmakers lose their edge, vigor, and passion over time. Okay, may I just interject real quick? You love Death Proof. Well, Death Proof is is a very, very good movie. So, yeah, sorry, Zach, we are going to collectively ignore that. And also, who cares about his self-importance and his supposed plans to retire? That should have no bearing on the work. It's too late, Adam. You can't you can't bring QT back. <laughs> hey, hey, we're not there yet, Josh. Okay. And again, Zach continues, maybe he's right, but in this instance, he's up against the one director who can contradict that idea. Scorsese, at 70, just made The Wolf of Wall Street, a movie full of energy made by a man still obviously brimming with passion in his work. And before that, Scorsese made Hugo, where he managed to explore and expand his own toolbox by introducing 3D into the mix. I voted for Scorsese because he and his films are ageless, timeless, everlasting, And Tarantino is a defeatist. (laughs) Okay. Will from L.A. with our final bit. Last week, Michael Phillips told us that the forecast for this poll is blood all over the walls, which made me think who he was talking about. Would a director only interested in throwing blood all over the walls direct a heavily coded romantic melodrama about the turn of the century social climate in New York City? What about a film about the European origins of cinema seen through the eyes of two children? Or how about a road trip movie about an abused single mother trying to find a better life for her son? Of course, the answer is no. A director only focused on throwing blood all over the walls would not be interested in the these stories. Luckily, Martin Scorsese is no such director. While Tarantino's films are an event, we know that every one of them will involve criminals and some sort of unfortunate snafu where extreme graphic violence is the only acceptable answer. Meanwhile, Scorsese's next film is about monks in Japan. I have to go with the adult here. Ouch. Ouch. You buy every bit of that. Though I think he maybe is taking Michael a little bit too literally. He's probably just really referring to the fact that He's the guy who made Goodfellas. You know, there's a lot of blood. There's a lot of splatter in that film. But your point is well taken and apparently will. Many film spotting listeners were with you. The results, Josh. 53% to 47% for Scorsese. So close. Very close. close. And a surprise to me. It was a surprise to me as well. Not a huge surprise, but I had picked Tarantino. That means our first final four matchup is Paul Thomas Anderson versus Martin Scorsese. So you have a guy who made Boogie Nights and really effectively ripped off Goodfellas. Yeah. Going against the guy who made Goodfellas. There's a little bit of that going on in there. There's a lot. There's a lot. Going against that man. You're going with Scorsese? No. No, of course I'm you're sticking not. with PTA. Yeah. He's my guy. I am too. I mean, it's it's a lot tougher um, than it has been previously in my voting for PTA, but that's where I'm going as well. All right. Our third matchup, Wes Anderson v. David Fincher. We posed to you last week. This one was a toss-up. I really did not know how this one would shake out. And here we have Kate again. I'll admit I'm biased for this one. I'm in film school right now, almost single-handedly thanks to David Fincher, specifically thanks to The Social Network. Fincher's films are technically perfect, stunningly cast, and spine-chilling, but I think they also speak to the national psyche in a way that Anderson's simply don't. Fincher's films ask the questions we're afraid to ask ourselves. What happens when we're overtaken by fear of the unknown? Zodiac. Who are we under the person society asks us to become? Gone Girl. 
What happens when we're able to take the power structure into our own hands and away from the big guys? Do we end up becoming the big guys ourselves, the social network? Ultimately, I always find an Anderson film charming and well-made, but really only Grand Budapest has left me thinking on my way out the door. Fincher, on the other hand, never fails to make me ponder hours, weeks, or even years later. So I don't want to make you uneasy, Josh, but really just based on this and some previous comments... I mean, Kate's going to replace you as co-host of this show someday. I mean, <laughs> right, it's just good, it's just going to happen. Good to know. Okay, there'll so be, you can. There'll be far less Wes Anderson on the show. It <laughs> there sounds will like. be. Now, someone who will not ever replace you. And in fact, he's kind of dead to me now. Well, really, Brett Merriman out in Hollywood, he was kind of dead to me after he really, really went for the Revenant almost as much as you, Josh. Smart but man. Now he has to rub it in. The first choice in director for anything you write is always David Fincher. He makes every project better. I like how this starts. He's the smartest director in the business. If you want to learn how to direct, he's where you start. I treat every new Fincher film as an event, but I pick Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson is a great director and a great writer. His work is personal, idiosyncratic, and immersive. His films are gifts that keep giving with subsequent viewings. Fincher is a director for hire. He will have a longer career, but Anderson has a better chance of consistently conjuring the magic we seek in cinema. There's no wrong answer here, but the correct answer is Wes Anderson. Man, I hadn't really thought of Fincher as a journeyman director, but Brett's making a good case for that, Hmm. especially lately. It is a good case, but you still are never staying at my house again, Brett. (laughs) Will from L.A. said, the way this poll turns out will reflect what type of gendered mode of cinema the whole of film spotting is made of. Wes, by comparison, is far more of a feminized male, one who operates in pastels, moderately soft music, and themes about family unity and disunity, supported by less intimidating genres like comedy and comedy drama. If there's ever proof of the overriding male domination of the cinematic form, look no further than how people so easily blast Wes Anderson's work as the same old thing, and overlook other modern contemporaries who do the exact same thing, except in more easily masculine-appealing genres. All that to say that my choice is Wes Anderson. I am definitely way more macho than you. Yeah, well, you know, as Will is going this way, I thought he was going to loop that up with the fact that Gone Girl, one of the problems I had was mm-hmm. how macho that mm-hmm. movie was. Yeah, you were misguided about that. No, no, as there's well, something. Josh, but... Will's on to something here, and it'll no. be interesting to see how this well, plays he's, out. Well, he is on to something, but not in how it reflects on Fincher as a great filmmaker. Ken Link in Flagstaff, Arizona, really has the best culmination here. Every time I run the theater test on this one, I end up sobbing on the floor of the lobby. Hours later, both films long since ended. Wes Anderson then, and may God have mercy on your souls. <laughs> Sorry, Ken. Sorry to do that to you. <laughs> the results, Wes Anderson takes down David Fincher, 56% to 44%. So again, close, but not too close. It was a lot closer than that early on, so I'm yes. happy to see yeah, it was, how things it came out. It was pretty split 50-50 for a while. That brings us to our final Elite Eight matchup. It was Steven Soderbergh versus the Cone Brothers. I know where the satchel is. If you knew you would have it with you. I could find it from the riverbank. I know where it is. I know something better. What's that? I know what it's going to be. Where's that? It will be brought to me and placed at my feet. All right, so was the Cone's Chigurh-esque path through this tourney slowed at all by Steven Soderbergh? And 
Sam suggested last week that the forecast for this one was pretty simple. Enjoy your retirement, Stephen. Mm-hmm. And I was with him completely. Dustin Mills says, first off, Soderbergh is not retired anymore. A simple Google search will tell you that. The Cone brothers are good. Steven Soderbergh is a master. Simple as that. Anything the Cones can do, Soderbergh does better. Now, here's where it gets really interesting, Josh. <laughs> Whoa. Here's where it gets really good. <laughs> Female revenge movies, side effects over intolerable cruelty. No. Yes, he's 100% right. Drug money movie, Traffic Over No Country for Old Men. No way. Okay, he's wrong there. (laughs) Ensemble crime comedy. Here's where it's really going to test us, Josh. Oceans 11 through 13 and Out of Sight Over Burn After Reading and The Big Lebowski. I'll give it a second because of Out of Sight, but then I will say no. I'm going to say yes, but only if we remove Ocean's 12 and Ocean's 13. Sorry, (laughs) those aren't very good movies. Not what he's asking. Hey, if we're going to take straight up movies, two against two, Ocean's 11 and Out of Sight, yeah, I'm taking them over Burn After Reading and The Big Lebowski. Need I go on, Dustin says, I think not. Soderbergh for the win. I'm glad Dustin convinced himself. (laughs) Well, he convinced himself, and just based on those movies, he... I guess convinced me, except he didn't. I, of course, voted the Cone Brothers because outside of those head-to-head matchups, there are so many other Cone Brothers films that I adore. But what I do love here that Dustin helps set up is all these people are writing in with suggestions, Josh, on what Film Spotting Madness 2017 mm-hmm. should look like. And, of course, Sam and I are already debating this and have been in you discussions for, brackets for several months. But that right there is probably our first look at the semifinal round of 2017 Madness, which could shape up to be the Pantheon edition bracket. I like it. All the films from the Pantheon, Mm -hmm. which I think is up to about 37 right now, so we might have to expand the field. Maybe we'll bring in some of the movies that are in top consideration for the Pantheon but haven't been anointed yet, and we're going to break it down to one final movie. Can you imagine all those films? I mean, the directors is hard enough, and actors and actresses was hard enough, but really choosing between Vertigo and Citizen Kane well, and or a lot Out of, of Sight are personal favorites, too. Yeah. So, yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's going to be impossible. I'm already having nightmares. I want to know Sam's odds on Out of Sight v. Big Lebowski yeah. now. And then I want to know his odds <laughs> two days later. <laughs> two days later. I, I want a, a semi-weekly update on Sam's odds for that matchup. Okay. Will from L.A. joins us again here with some great feedback. Tough one. Let the deciding vote be judged upon how these respective directors treat a particular recurring collaborator, George Clooney. Interesting approach. In Out of Sight, Solaris, The Good German, and The Ocean's Movies, Clooney is dashing and charming, but his persona is never subverted by Soderbergh. With the Coens, however, Clooney is usually a bumbling idiot, often making gigantic and childish mistakes, which often leads to punishment via a beautiful smackdown by John Goodman or countless slaps by Josh Brolin. Before you think I'm a semi-vengeful Clooney hater who finds schadenfreude in seeing him in a negative light, I do, but that's beside the point, I'd like to use this example as a reflection of how the Coens view Hollywood. Their films are the ones where the marginalized often have a leading role, whereas the commonly associated Hollywood types are given roles that don't instantly portray them in a flattering light. For this reason, and many other reasons, I have to go with the Coens. Their mischievous side is exceedingly rare in this day and age, which easily trumps Soderbergh's refined classicism. Everybody has a way in to, <laughs> to rationalize decisions <laughs> to rationalize. It's great. Mike H., can we stop for a moment and recognize the fact that Soderbergh got here by beating out Werner Herzog, who himself won out over Terrence Malick? Seriously, talk about a Cinderella story if Cinderella never deserved to be a story. By far the easiest choice I've ever had to make in my entire life. So I'm a little bit confused. Maybe, Josh, you can help me here. But when he says, if Cinderella never deserved to be a story, that suggests to me that 
he never really was a Cinderella story, our lowest seed. He really belonged in the mix all along. He's he's going Soderbergh? Could be, or he never deserved to be oh, this far in the he first place. He should have lost maybe. to Herzog. Yeah, and... yeah, yeah. Which, okay. which I would agree with. Yeah, you would agree with. <laughs> I would say it's a very, very tough decision. Rory Dunn said, I look forward to the results of this one, mostly because I look forward to the Coen brothers demolishing Wes Anderson in the next round. Thank you, Rory. This is getting out of control. <laughs> all this Wes Anderson hate? Mm-hmm. Man, yeah, unreasonable. I think it may be time to call out all the Wes Anderson supporters. Clearly, there are many yeah. of them. We're just we're just polite and staying quiet in the background, not That's trying it. to ramp up support Th- against him. This really is, though, like last year's madness, where I became the biggest Bill Murray hater in the world, you despite did. the fact that I love Bill Murray, and despite the fact that I'm a huge Wes Anderson fan, just not as huge as you. It Josh. kind of brings out the worst in all of us. This tournament, yeah, we're discovering it does, and wow. Did the Coen brothers just absolutely crush Steven Soderbergh here? 92% to 8%. If the rule you followed brought you to this, of what use was the rule? <laughs> you sound even sexier than Javier Bardem. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Holy cow. I'll take that. Yeah, 92 to 8. This is what the Coens have done so far. This has been their path of destruction through Film Spotting Madness 2016. 92 to 8 over Kiarostami. 85 to 15 over Steve McQueen, and now 92-8 over Soderbergh, easily the most dominant run in the tourney, and maybe fair to say the easiest matchups. I mean, these for me, despite all the hand-wringing there and the great explanations for Soderbergh, who is my guy, who I made a strong case for even being in this tournament bracket, the Coen brothers really have had the easiest path so far. They were the easiest for me That's each what I'm time, saying. because, yeah, the, I'm expecting them, really at this point, we're looking at them possibly taking this thing. They could. They could. So that brings us to our final, final four matchup, the Cone Brothers versus Wes Anderson. And I know this is highly reductionist, if that's the proper term, Josh, but just like we had the nature battle in round one between Malik and Herzog, and we had this matchup in the Elite Eight between Tarantino and Scorsese, the kind of blood spatter battle, mm-hmm. if you will. Now we get the cork battle. You had to pull out the Q word, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, it's it. It's the Battle of Cork. Which brand of cork do you enjoy more? For me, it is no question. It is the Cone Brothers. Josh, this one could make you sweat a little bit, but this probably not This is my championship. This, yeah. I mean, this is what I would like the championship to be. Uh, it's obviously not going to happen. I see that all of the campaigning that I've been trying to do in this segment mm-hmm. for Wes Anderson is probably going to be for naught. And I think it's maybe for the reason that... You just pointed out when you talk about them being quirky filmmakers, yet look at the Coen's films that are not like that at all. Look at Fargo. Look at No Country for Old Men. Look at Miller's Crossing. There's still some quirk in there. There is, but they're also, you know, mostly tragedies. And um, Anderson hasn't really gone that dark. Am I I trying to talk? Not many pastels in those Coen films. Am I talking myself out of voting for Wes here? Keep it up. Oh, man, this is going to be hard. If you were curious, we did at the beginning of this do a little bet between us, me, you, Sam, and Mike Merrigan, the founding father of Film Spotting Madness. Who I no longer communicate with. No, apparently not. So far, (laughs) Mike got seven of eight right in the Elite Eight. He had Malik making a run. He's three for four in the final four. He, along with the rest of us, Josh, had Quentin Tarantino beating Martin Scorsese. You, Josh, six of eight in the round of eight, and you're now only two of four in the final four. You also thought Tarantino would win, and you thought Linklater, who lost to Fincher in the last round, would beat Wes Anderson. Well, what I was counting on doubted Wes Anderson. What I was counting on is you just rambling forever and ever about Linklater films. Usually a good bet. 
you just bullied the listenership into voting for How him. How dare you? Obviously. It didn't happen, or I wasn't convincing. I, I overestimated you. Yeah, <laughs> will be the last time. Sam, 8 of 8 in the Elite 8, but he's now down to 2 for 4 as well because... Quentin Tarantino and Fincher. He thought Fincher would beat Wes. I was eight of eight in the round of eight, and I right now am best positioned to take the bracket because I only lost on Tarantino. So I've got three of those final four. We hope you've been having as much fun with this as we've been having. You can play now at filmspotting.net. That's where you vote. And you can also see all the matchups and click to see the matchups in bracket form. If you leave a comment and, you know, we can't have them all be Kate and Will and Chris Massa with the Massive Minute. We want even more responses. You can leave a comment in the poll and let us know where you are listening from. We always appreciate that. And again, vote early. As soon as you hear it or see it posted, please do vote. Make your vote count. Time to turn our attention to another director, Elaine May, as we wrap up our film spotting marathon of her work. We'll discuss her final and much maligned movie, Ishtar. Stay with us. Look me in the eyes and tell me one more time. You love me, you need me, you'll always be mine Just another screw up Who meant well enough Seems I never do what I'm supposed to do Don't ask me why, cause I couldn't tell you It was 1993 land of opportunity it was just my girl and me us against the world it's down to the wire anybody's game josh with you off and the show format being a little bit different the past few weeks we haven't been able to feature our comments from listeners or our thank yous for the donations we've been receiving and we are very happy to do that now first we want to mention the music that we're featuring this week and i didn't know what sam was going to come up with i was trying to think of a tie-in to midnight special and well this is why sam gets paid the big bucks as our producer we're of course featuring the music of lucero i'm a big fan they feature lead singer ben nichols he is the brother of jeff nichols director of midnight special Tracks coming from their 2015 album, All a Man Should Be. They are currently playing a stretch of Midwest dates in Kalamazoo and Cleveland this weekend. More info at luceromusic.com. Let's get to the donations, starting with Aaron in Fairbanks, Alaska, and Jonathan in Bowdoin, Sweden, who said, You made me realize I love movies most of all. Well, that, that's sweet, but we should probably also apologize to everyone else who's getting less love. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know who those possible that, people are. It seems like... A line of voiceover from a movie, maybe in the film spotting movie that will ultimately be made about us, Josh. Nicole Stanmore in New South Wales, Australia, also donated. And Cyrus in Austin, Texas. I'm still waiting for you guys to come down here. I've been listening since your Her slash Lewin Davis episode. Though there have been gaps where I don't get to listen much, I've always loved your show. As a college student, I'm not really in a position to make recurring payments, and this donation isn't nearly what you deserve, but it's what I can do at the moment. I am in a long-distance relationship, and your podcasts always keep me awake on my long night drives home. Thanks for all the amazing work. Sincerely, Cyrus. P.S. Next time you see Michael Phillips, 
tell him that I can't not picture Jeff Goldblum. He hears that so many times from our listeners. I love it. And it's so dead on. Yes, we are still eagerly waiting to go to Austin, maybe do a live show down there. And you know what's funny? I just pulled some numbers recently of our most downloaded episodes. Mm -hmm. I pulled our top 10. I'm pretty sure the episode that was just a film spotting fix where we talked about her and Inside Lewin Davis is in the top 10. Really? I don't know if that's just a matter of timing or Spike people. Jones, yeah, Coen Spike Brothers, Jones. same show. I don't know. It surprised me, though. New Silver Club donations come to us via David in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Amanda in Glen Iris, Victoria, Australia, and the right reverend, Robert Lewis, in Damascus, Maryland. Here's my semi-annual donation. And no, it is not time to pay the dealer. I actually see Film Spotting and its family of shows more like one of many components of spiritual direction. The component I'm speaking of is listening to others who have some of the same interest as you, but also occasionally contain different ways of seeing, understanding, or articulating elements of that shared interest. When I find differences, it is usually something as simple as not mentioning items on a top five list that I think should have been there, or having something in the list that I would never have placed there. But there are times such as the love you gave boyhood and not appreciating the Marx Brothers that provoke stronger differences slash disagreements, which I shared with you. You did. We almost disowned you over the boyhood comments, or at least I did, Robert, but... It was close. Being able to agree to disagree and still accept those you disagree with as equals is the goal. Therefore, saying, I hear what you're saying, but you're completely wrong, can be a way of articulating the process of disagreeing, but still valuing the person. With that said, I really did miss my fix the week you did not have an episode. Well, that's nice to hear, and it's also nice to hear that we are somehow providing a spiritual component to people's lives, Josh. That's what you got into this for, wasn't it? Yeah, completely. $5 a month donors, Chris Massa, the famous Chris Massa in Pittsburgh, PA. While I was leaving all those pithy comments on Film Spotting Madness, I mostly hoped it would amuse my fellow readers. I didn't expect that you'd read many of them on the air or start referring to me just by my last name or give me my own segment, The Massa Minute. I've been realizing the need to pony up and pay the dealer for a while, and well, you kind of wore me down. Seriously, it's the least I can do to add myself to your list of monthly subscribers. Thanks again for a great show. Jay in Salt Lake City, Utah also wrote in, had a little bit of correspondence with him. He took some umbrage with the vitriol that was spewed at Batman v Superman, mainly by Michael Phillips, Okay, which potentially valid. Some who defend that movie could have that reaction to especially Michael's remarks. And we had a little bit of an exchange on that. And you know what? Somehow that exchange led to him sending us some money. And he brought up just the disconnect between critics and fans on that film. My son is off to film school next year. His perspective on media, video games, YouTube films is starting to wear off. I think it's worth examining the disparity between the critics and fans, a wisdom of the crowds kind of thing. Could there be subtext in this movie that is lost on critics and Gen Xers and boomers? Not sure. Lastly, Josh is so wrong about the big short, and I just signed up for a $5 subscription. (laughs) Your conversations about film and culture are invaluable. Thanks. I guess, you know, if he's going to pass a little cash our way while insulting me, I'll I'll take it. Yeah, I mean, you have to take it, right? It's the best way. And speaking of Batman v Superman, I don't know if we really want to get into it too much, but Jesse Sheedon in Durham, North Carolina, also is a $5 a month donor and has some interesting comments on Batman versus Superman, and I brought up the notion that while the movie is ultimately a failure, I kind of like what it's doing and how it reappropriates the characters and the myths of Batman and Superman. And he basically says, no, you're wrong. What it's doing with them is not very valuable and basically sucks. Though he said it, Josh, in much more dispassionate, articulate ways than that. Maybe we will feature those comments in a future episode. Our final donor for the week, a gold-level donation coming to us from Vienna, Austria. Sylvia 
says, here in Vienna, I've been listening to you guys for years and adore your podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Sylvia. Thank you, and thank you to everyone who donated this week. I can tell the play by the look in their eyes. Don't ask me why, but I know that I'm right. Hello, this is Tom Hedleston from I Saw the Light, and you're listening to Film Spotting. So I said to Will, I said, look, uh, we got to go to New York or, or Nashville, because those are the only two places to be if you want to sell songs. Mm-hmm. That's how come we came to New York. Mm-hmm. What a smuck I was. Schmuck. It's not smuck, it's schmuck. Smuck. Schmuck. Smuck. Stay. Now say muck. Muck. Now say sh and muck together real fast. Smuck. Closer. You really know the lingo. You're listening to Film Spotting, and if you think that's funny, well then maybe Ishtar is for you. Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty in Elaine May's final film as director, at least for now, and the final film in our Elaine May marathon. I should note, though, Josh, that it's May's final narrative feature up to this point. Anyway, she did direct the Mike Nichols American Masters for PBS this year. If you haven't seen it and you can watch it, I highly recommend it. Looking back over this marathon so far, Josh, we've gotten a lot of great responses from people, social media via email as well, telling us how they've loved being introduced to Elaine May's work. And so far, what we've gotten has been, across the board, positive. And then Ishtar came along, <laughs> and that's where things changed a little. Hey, guys, this is Andre from Charlottesville, Virginia. I'll be interested to hear what you think of Ishtar. I don't want to influence your experiences, but that was truly one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. And I'm not exaggerating. Bad acting, bad writing. I didn't laugh once. What is especially astonishing is that this flaming sack of dog crap came from Elaine May because I really enjoyed a new leaf, aren't great kid, and Mikey and Mickey. Keep up the good work. So if you somehow weren't aware of Ishtar's reputation before you heard longtime listener Andre there with phrases like one of the worst movies I've ever seen and flaming sack of dog crap, another bit of illustration via illustration, Scott Wiley from Gainesville, Georgia, sent us an email with an old far side comic and we'll post it in our show notes. It has a cavern like setting Josh with the devil behind a counter and two schlubby men. One's buying a movie. One is looking at the offerings of movies and all of them say Ishtar on them. That's the only movie available. And under it, the caption says hell's video store. <laughs> And that gives you a picture of what the reception was like at the time. Exactly. And I'll say in fairness to May, we did get one very spirited pre-discussion defensive Ishtar that came to us from Ms. Hilburn Rushing Cooper in Richmond, Virginia. She said, I've been a loyal listener for years and years, and this is my first time writing. I'm so afraid that you are going to skewer Ishtar. Yes, I know that it was really expensive, but the dollars actually show up on the screen. I love this movie, and I'll tell you why she did. The reasons including the cast the music, the politics, and the hero story. Who are our heroes? Beatty and Hoffman as Lyle and Chuck. Two, well, losers. With big dreams of being big-time songwriters who take a gig performing in Morocco and get caught up in Cold War hijinks involving an ancient map, a despotic emir, the CIA, leftist guerrillas, a mysterious revolutionary dressed like a man played by Isabel Ajani, and, don't forget, Josh, a blind camel. Along with May attached to this project, 
the movie boasted those two big stars. Hoffman was coming off of Kramer versus Kramer and Tootsie. Beatty was coming off a Best Actor and Best Picture nod for Reds and a Best Director win. Vittorio Storaro, who shot Reds and The Conformist and Apocalypse Now and a lot of other great movies, was the director of photography, and it had a $51 million budget. All of that produced a paltry $14 million box office haul. It is commonly regarded as one of the biggest bombs of all time. The New Yorker's Richard Brody is a longtime defender of Ishtar. He calls the movie one of the great modern portraits of artists. And you probably caught that he did not use great to modify artists because Chuck and Lyle are undeniably huge failures as songwriters and performers. And yet, minor spoiler alert, they are ultimately redeemed. Josh, will you offer some redemption as well for May's supposed failure? I'm glad you mentioned Brody's support of it because he's not alone in no. claiming this as a misunderstood, you know, masterpiece is a word I've seen used. Peter Labuza, who helped us kick off this May marathon. So you have two well. choices here when you're seeing Ishtar for the first time, as I was and you were, and it's what, about almost 30 years since mm-hmm. it first came out. You know its reputation as the bomb. You're also aware of the reclamation work that has been going on yeah, in the last few years. a lot of baggage years. when you're watching this movie. Man, and you know, obviously where you want to go is with a misunderstood masterpiece mm-hmm. crowd because we're movie lovers, we're movie supporters, and it's more fun to revisit something and consider it an undiscovered gem in some way. I got to tell you, I'm, you know, I'm down the middle. That's the boring, honest response to this movie. There are some serious problems with Ishtar that you would, I mean, you would really have to overlook some things that I'm sure we'll get to and set them aside to claim this as any sort of triumph. There is also a lot of wonderful stuff here. Yeah. And especially the first, maybe good third. I mean, the way you were describing the film, maybe people who haven't seen it would say, yeah, that sounds pretty terrible. Hoffman, (laughs) Beatty, Blind Camel. Right. Like, uh, I could see why it bombed. The weird thing is the Hoffman Beatty stuff together, it all works. Yeah. I mean, they never needed to go to Morocco. And this movie <laughs> would have been amazing. Right. I loved so much the interplay between those two, the songs that May wrote many of the lyrics for, maybe the best one and though. Paul Williams. Paul Williams, yeah, he did the lyrics writer. and the music for that dangerous business. And the movie opens before we see anything, we hear they're back and forth right. trying to toss lines and come up with the key changes for yeah. this song. And and you're thinking, I didn't even know it was about two songwriters, to be honest with you. Mm. I mean, when this thing came out, I was was, uh, I think in middle school, already a movie follower. So I was aware of what happened to it. Never saw it. I just thought it was about two bumbling guys in the desert. Yeah, I was only aware of it as a cultural joke, even exactly. at that age. So yeah. I, so watching this sitting down, I was like, well, who's singing? Is this Beatty? Is this Hoffman? Yeah. I'm like, this is kind of funny. Telling the truth can be bad news. Telling the truth can be bad news. Telling the truth can be... Tell, 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 telling the truth can be good news. Telling the truth is a bad idea. Telling the truth is a difficult problem. Telling the truth, telling the truth is a is a scary. Telling the truth is a scary predicament. Telling the truth is a bitter herb. Telling the truth is a dangerous tunnel. When you get out of that tunnel, it's a black life ahead. Forget herb. I never heard of a hit that had the word herb in it. Tell him the and then we see them, and there's that one moment where they're rehearsing together, and Beatty is coming up with these just terrible lyric suggestions. 
Hoffman turns to him yeah. and goes, when you're on, on you're on. on. Yeah. And that that is the epitome of their relationship. This yeah. is a romance. And the conviction of both actors. Oh, absolute yeah. conviction. Yeah. They go for it. And it's they feel safe with each other, I think, to go for it. But really, this is a romance between no one in the world believes that Chuck is talented at all except Lyle. No one in the world believes that Lyle is talented That's at true. all except Chuck. They have each other. Mm-hmm. They like a record deal. They like some gigs. But they don't really need them because they have each other mm-hmm. to appreciate the other guy's lack of talent. Yeah. And watching that is just so fun. Yeah. I don't know that I can call it a misunderstood masterpiece either because I think the M word is definitely too strong for this. But I had fun watching it partly because my wife came in and started watching it halfway through. And I thought about kind of giving her some background. She didn't ask. I thought about giving her a little bit of background, trying to set up what she was watching, even though that was even hard for me to explain, like the tone and just what's happening with the plot and how absurd and crazy it is. And she really has no idea about the movie's reputation or anything about it. She started watching during one of those actually kind of tense political conversations between a Johnny and one of the guerrilla leaders. And then she's watching all this espionage stuff, which kind of seems like legit spy movie stuff. And then that's followed by, you know, Beatty and Hoffman flailing around in the desert with the blind camel. And she finally, I was waiting for it, just waiting for it. She finally turns to me and says, so is this a comedy? (laughs) Sure. Just totally straightforward asking, is this a comedy? And, I had no answer for her. I was basically like, <laughs> exactly. I mean, so I'm with you well, that it it's, was. it's probably boring <laughs> and it probably won't satisfy Andre or other Ishtar haters or lovers to say that we're a little bit stuck in the middle. But it is very much for me a comedy like a movie from last year that we both really appreciated, What We Do in the Shadows. Now, that was a movie that was funnier, that got more laughs out of me on an initial viewing. But the more I thought about it and the more I talked about it, the better it got. And sometimes when you're watching a movie, and Ishtar is one of these movies where you're saying to yourself, what the hell is happening? That isn't funny at first. It's just kind of distracting and annoying. But there is an audacity to this film and how absurd it is that I think you have to reckon with and you have to respect. And you talked about Paul Williams and the music and that dynamic between Beatty and Hoffman. It takes tremendous talent to write music that bad. I had that same line written in my notes because the preceding line is so good slash awful. Right. She said, come look. This is Beatty. She said, come look. There's a wardrobe of love in my eyes. Take your time. Look around. See if there's something your size. Hey, and when you're on, you're on, Adam. Exactly. So that was great. Their level of commitment, we said conviction, but their level of commitment to their craft, what craft there is in ratio to their level of talent is funny the more this movie goes on. Well, the plain fact is you want to treasure this movie just for its oddball existence, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, we want more messy movies like this where not everything works, but the stuff that does really does and the stuff that doesn't, yeah, they're taking a risk and you can see that risk. I think if there is a significant problem, it might just be structural for me, actually, in that Mm -hmm. once they go to Morocco and the CIA plot comes down on the film, it separates the two of them. And just by matter of function of the plot, they each have their own strand and Mm -hmm. they go different ways and they get mixed up with different characters, have different motivations. It's trying to set them up in opposition to each other a little bit. And the movie loses a lot when they're not on the screen together for the reasons that we've already expressed, how good they are together. And then when they do come back, and I think it's that sequence in the desert where they're stranded in the desert, 
the whole tenor of the comedy changes there so that they're no longer the comedy is no longer coming out of the relationship. It's coming out of the scenario. Yeah, it's very physical, too. And it's well, it's physical. And it's just they're trying to mine laughs out of the fact that it's Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty in the desert with a camel. And, and it gets yeah. removed from the fact that it's Chuck and Lyle. And some of those scenes, though, did make me laugh. They're pretty funny. Now, what isn't funny is like the entire sequence with Hoffman trying to make people believe these gun runners, the gun smuggling scene. And, yeah, and not, really not at all flat. because it's potentially offensive. It's just not funny. No. And it also features the Beatty character, Lyle, being wildly inconsistent with yes. how he is throughout the rest of the film. And that's the only problem with Beatty's performance or maybe how it's conceived is that he vacillates between being the dumbest guy on the planet, like potentially somehow mentally challenged and then other times like actually getting things and right. being kind of savvy. And that's the only thing I really took issue with there. But I disagree with you a little bit only in that it needed them to split apart. I don't know how else the movie could have pulled it off more effectively, but that split and them coming back together is what really makes this movie an interesting coda to this marathon. We've talked about this a lot through The Heartbreak Kid and Mikey and Nikki and starting with A New Leaf. All of these movies have been about marriages or about partnerships, these relationships that disintegrate. And A New Leaf at least ended on, you could say, a hopeful note, maybe not a happy ending, as happy as that movie could get. Yeah, it was it's hopeful. a black comedy. Yeah. The misery that is at the conclusions of both the heartbreak kid and Mikey and Nikki, I mean, that's legit misery and even more so in Mikey and Nikki. Here, we actually get joy after potentially splitting up over all of the things that artistic partnerships usually split over. A woman, money, their egos, all the things that get in the way of these types of endeavors, they somehow persevere through that, which is interesting to see in her final movie in a movie that was such a disaster, it's by far her most optimistic film. Yeah, I think that's fair. And it's it's definitely a turn towards broader comedy as well than the previous two, I think. And I love the reunion bit at the end as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the machinations that it maybe took to <laughs> right. get them there don't all work. Let's write a but few lines and explain it away. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that we're back in this hotel. First of all, I, I do like when they first get there and it's almost like they found their place because I got the sense that the Westerners in this North African hotel were so desperate for American entertainment that they right. mistake what these guys are doing yeah. as entertainment. Yeah, as, as them having actual talent. And so initially they're they're a huge hit. And so the finale brings them back together and it, it returns. It's kind of a nice mix because at this point we have these American soldiers who are in the audience and Chuck and Lyle are on stage. They're a little more polished in singing Dangerous Business. Uh-huh. But it's not any better. No, it's still bad. It's still a terrible <laughs> it's still song. It's terrible. And then we get the soldiers' faces in the crowd. Right. Like what it it might have been like Sarah's face when she yeah. walked in on the movie. What like, is what are this? we watching? And I love the visual motif May has in this film of giving us just recurring faces in an audience with jaws yeah, dropped. Just dropped. And just astonished with what they're and seeing. That's how we are as viewers. And, and here it is at the end, except there's one woman in the audience who's just in love with it, yeah. right? She's she's just <laughs> yeah. starstruck. And I, you know, so at the end of the day, if I'm going to have to pick which way I'm going to go on this Ishtar film, I'll, I'll go with her rather than the soldiers. I'd yeah. rather no, be I... starstruck at what they've been able to pull off in this I'm film. I'm with you. I'm with you completely. And I didn't really think this through completely. Big surprise. But we started off this marathon talking about her background as an improviser with Nichols and how much we see that play in or not play in with her films. It comes through in a major way 
in terms of individual scenes playing out as if she just let the camera run and Mikey and Nikki and let's see where the actors go and just how bleak this will get and how painful and honest it will get. In this movie, it was the first one I felt like, even though it may have been very tightly scripted and maybe there wasn't any actual improvisation at all, it felt the most like an improvised show, meaning the way you're watching Second City or other improvisers, a scene begins and two minutes in, it completely changes its tone, it shifts it, and then the next scene, because you're just constantly building off mm-hmm, it, and you're looking mm-hmm. for an interesting spin to put on it, yeah. and you keep going and going and and never saying no and just seeing where it takes you. This has that same energy to its credit, but also maybe to its fault. Yeah. That scene to scene, it's just not cohesive. I think that's maybe where having actors like Beattie and Hoffman, who are relatively new to this sort of performing it does let them down when they're both literally stranded in the desert and somewhat comically stranded. Right. Because when they're in their apartments riffing on their songs, they've got, again, that character footing and just enough of a structure around them to play around in where they do it beautifully and maybe not so much in the desert. Though I am going to say that I thought the blind camel scene was very funny. It's funny. It's ve- that... And that's a bit of slapstick. And they're playing around with that. It also <laughs> yeah. has, we haven't mentioned him yet, the invaluable presence of Charles Grodin. Oh, right. As a, as CIA, a CIA operative who, yeah. who meets them with the blind camel. So so I thought that scene worked really well. It does. And I think, you know, speaking of Grodin and the spy plot, another great detail, how the American spies, you notice they all have their, their dress ties underneath their disguises of robes and turbans. Oh, of course. They're always yeah. still wearing their... I don't <laughs> yeah. know why Sarah didn't catch that, but anyways. <laughs> and how funny that is. <laughs> yes. So I think this movie gets a lot of retroactive political points. Yes. Meaning that I in, 87, to ask yeah. in 87, it's, it's very much a Cold War type spoof. Spies Like Us was doing the same yes, thing, it was. right? Yeah. So maybe not considered as cutting edge. But now you watch the movie, say, post-Iraq war invasion in the years after Mm -hmm. 9-11, and suddenly Ishtar got a lot smarter, right, about American interventionism, spoofing that, the misguidedness Mm -hmm. of that. And so I think that's a fair reading of the film. I'm not saying it's, you know, not a way you can look at it and say, hey, look at this film now and what it may have been pointing to. Yeah. But I don't know how much credit you can give that in 87. Yeah, and Brody gives it a lot of credit. May, when she talks about this film, talks about it very much in political terms as if that was something that was very much on her mind and that was part of her agenda. I don't know how seriously I'm able to take the politics. I think you could make the case, certainly, that even in 87, it's more pointed in its satire than a movie like Spies Like Us, which I loved back in the mid-80s. But you're watching it. Yes, of course, you can draw certain parallels to foreign policy at the time. You have the duplicity of the CIA and how they're really only interested in maintaining American interests, no matter the cost. That's yes, all there. That is there. That is there. But again, uh, there's something still that keeps me from really just proclaiming this movie, this political, satirical masterpiece. I just can't quite go there. But I do love as we've talked about the performances, the inspired casting reversal, right? Having Warren Beatty, (laughs) the ultimate Hollywood heartthrob who goes through women and has songs written about him, he is the ultimate schlub here, or should I say slub here. (laughs) He has no luck with women whatsoever. They're not attracted to him. He doesn't know how to talk to them, can't even begin a conversation. I mean, at one point we get just the awesomeness of him groping a Johnny saying, are these breasts? Like, he's not even sure, really. And Hoffman is the hawk 
he's this macho stud with this sense of confidence with women anyway that's all out of proportion to his actual game. So that is mine for some pretty good laughs here. And we've talked about May visually and how sometimes she'll get a good joke out of just a little visual bit. How about I saw this rewatching a scene where when the Hoffman character is contemplating suicide and actually goes out onto the ledge, though probably more for attention than for actual right. thoughts about committing suicide. The police are are kind of cornering him there as Beatty goes out on the ledge with him. And at one point, as it's finally about to to end, the ordeal's over, there's one cop who's like hanging from bungee cords from the roof right. as if he yes. was going to like somehow careen down and save Warren Beatty. And then he's just stuck there in midair. There are great little moments like that. And my favorite bit in the movie, actually, is during the desert scene where Hoffman, just exhausted from the heat and lack of water, lays down on the desert and he's done. I mean, it looks like he might be dead. And Beatty notices that the vultures start coming down and they actually start swirling. And then they land there and they're kind of pecking at Hoffman a little bit and they're approaching him and Beatty I can't remember I think he's crawling towards Hoffman and the vultures then start coming towards him and he's like I'm moving here come on like just the fact that he'll say that to them like really come on I'm clearly not dead you're gonna actually do this to me I mean that made me laugh so I got some laughs out of Ishtar I did the thing about the Hoffman Beatty dynamic too is you know we all know that Hoffman is a legendarily short actor but I swear, they must have had him on his knees for some of these scenes because of the, the gap between yeah. them is enormous, which just adds to the flipping of roles that you're talking about. It does indeed. All right. Ishtar, the final film in our Elaine May marathon. I'll say we definitely gave it a bit of a redemption there, Josh. Sure. And we'll see if we give it even more redemption when we do our Elaine May marathon awards. we got to come up with a name for those. Should we call them the Nichols? I don't know. Would that be somehow justified or actually a slap in the face to Elaine May? The listeners usually bail us out with they a bail good us idea out. for this one. Yeah. So please send us your suggestions for what we should call those awards. And thank you to everyone who followed along through the marathon. If you have a completely different reaction to Ishtar than the one we just shared, let us know. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Or leave us a voicemail. That's at 312-264-0744. We might just feature it on an upcoming show. You can find Film Spotting on Facebook, and we're also on Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at our website, filmspotting.net, you can find 11 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. While you're there, take part in Film Spotting Madness, the director's edition. 32 directors, only one survives to direct another day. We've got P.T. Anderson, the Cone Brothers, Martin Scorsese, and Wes Anderson, all in contention there in the Final Four. Final Four voting is live right now. And if you haven't already, we strongly encourage you to check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, Film Spotting SVU and The Next Picture Show. You can find both in iTunes. Out in wide release, The Boss, the latest comedy from Melissa McCarthy, directed by her husband, Ben Falcone. And I was after... much more excited about this until I saw the trailer. Oh, man. Yeah, exactly. After all the goodwill she engendered from Spy, I've seen this trailer now way too many times, and I hope it's much, much better. Hardcore Henry, this is a first-person shooter movie with Charlotte Copley. I was much more That's excited about this until I heard that First-person shooter movie? No, no, oh. it's Copley. That's the problem yeah. here. <laughs> well, out in limited release, Demolition. Jake Gyllenhaal, my guy. Naomi Watts, my girl in a film directed by Jean-Marc Vallée, 
who did Wild and the Dallas Buyers Club. I just saw the trailer for this before Midnight Special, Josh. I I can't get excited despite the appearance of those two actors. I think he might be breaking things and then trying to repair his life metaphorically. Oh. Is that, I, I is that the demolition? I only saw the trailer once, but I, I think wonder, that's what it's about. I wonder if he's fixed in the end. <laughs> I Don't Belong Anywhere, the films of Chantel Ackerman slash No Home Movie. That's Ackerman's final film. It documents her mother's final months. Also out. Hope I can make time for that. And Miles Ahead, the long-awaited Miles Davis biopic directed by and starring Don Cheadle. Let's say we're genuinely excited for that. Genuinely I'm excited. I'm starting to feel bad about all mm. our snarkiness. And then remember... Adam McGoin, his latest with Christopher Plummer, that is also out. Next week on the show, we are planning to discuss the latest from Richard Linklater. Out a couple of weeks, doesn't matter. We need to get our Linklater fix, and we may get even more of a fix. We may share our top five Richard Linklater scenes. If you have a better idea for a top five list, I mean, we could certainly go with something obvious like top five 80s comedies. Yeah, Linklater characters. Linklater that would characters. Be, That might even be harder than scenes. Maybe. Because he has so many ensemble casts. Always open to suggestions. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week is by Lucero. It comes from the album All a Man Should Do. More information is at luceromusic.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.